Well, it's good to be back with you again. Uh, you guys are special to us for years of relationship long before um, we went to Ukraine. Uh, we've appreciated the fellowship of your church and the relationships that God's given us over the years at Cornerstone with Faith Church here. And uh, the heart you have, not just for this assembly, as important as that is, that you guys grow in your love and love of God and the knowledge of who he is and what he's done, and that, that bears fruit in this community, but you're, you're way beyond that as well. And uh, that's why we're here today, isn't it? To, uh, we live for the day that's coming ahead that we're going to look at, we're going to get a little glimpse of this morning as we uh, look at Psalm 67. So if you don't have your Bibles open, turn them to Psalm 67. And uh, maybe a little bit unusual title, but the simple title is Blessed, But to What End? Blessed, but to what end? I say this because the word bless or blessed or blessing, some of the most frequently used words in our Christian vocabulary. Would you agree? We say have a blessed day or God bless you or even just bless you after somebody sneezes. <laughs> we ask others to pray for God's blessing in certain matters that pertain to health or family or maybe job. We ask God to bless our churches, just as we did a moment ago here. We ask God to, to bless our missionaries who are serving around the world. But here's the question I want to put before you this morning. Do we really understand the biblical significance of God's blessing? It is, in fact, a, a theologically rich word that you find throughout the scriptures. And it probably has more to do with worldwide missions than you may realize. I believe that we're facing a time right now in which God's people really need to be clear-minded about this concept. And so I want us to look at a psalm that will help you to understand why God's blessing is indeed so important, what his blessing is designed to accomplish in our lives, and then finally the responsibility that comes with this blessing. So let's read Psalm 67. I'll read it. You can just follow along. And I think it's going to be on the screen as well if you don't happen to have access to a Bible. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I'm sure you notice the word bless. It's used three times in this short passage, once in the beginning of the psalm and twice uh, at the end of the psalm. Now, just a, a point of, of reference for those of you who like to study Hebrew poetry. There's something significant going on here. I don't want you to miss it because I think it opens up to us how this passage works, how it's, how it's structured and, and what it's trying to communicate. When you have a word used at the beginning... And a similar word or an identical word used at the end, it is the psalmist's way of drawing your attention 
to what's in between. In other words, it's telling you there's something about blessing that runs through this text. So it kind of frames it in. The, the technical word is inclusio, but I, I prefer to just use the word frames. It, it starts and ends, and so it kind of frames it like a picture frame around the thing that you're supposed to be seeing. The psalmist is praying. And when you look closer at what he's asking God to do, you begin to see something. You see this concept of blessing being filled out, but what you really begin to see is the amazing end game of God's redemptive plan. And so this psalm is a challenge for you to participate in that plan in three ways. So we're going to see there's, there's three points here, and it divides up uh, the first points in verses 1 and 2, the second points in verses 3 to 5, and the last point, verses 6 to 7. So it really it divides up very nicely and balanced, in a balanced way. So let's look at the first point in verses 1 and 2. The first way you can participate in God's plan is to pray for, for God's blessing. Talk to God and pray for his blessing. For whom? Well, he says in verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us. And then he goes on to say, and make his face to shine on us. So what's he asking for? The psalmist is asking for the grace, or we would say undeserved favor, and blessing that's given to people upon whose uh, face God's, or upon whom God's face shines. These words echo the blessing that we find mentioned elsewhere. Does it sound familiar to you? Can you think of a similar phraseology? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That blessing was actually given to Moses in, in uh, I believe, Numbers chapter 6 and verses 24 to 26. In fact, I'll read it to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So Moses was to give this instruction to Aaron, and Aaron in turn to whoever would be the subsequent high priest, and they were to read this blessing, to pronounce this blessing on the people of Israel. Now, what are we talking about when we use the word bless? We use it a lot, but do we really understand it? It was not a request for some kind of generic blessing that God was asking, that they were asking God to do, like, be kind, uh, um, help me have a nice day. You no, know, it's, it's much more than that. It was, it was being given to people whose sins had been covered by the atoning sacrifice that the high priest had offered. And so looking at this from our perspective, it would be like asking God to show you or me, a sinner who has rebelled against him, his unmerited love and his undeserved compassion. So it's not just, ah, have a nice day. It's much more than that. And this thing of his face shining upon you, what, what is that all about? Well... Face is oftentimes used to denote God's presence. So it's talking about being in his presence. Now think of this scene. Many of you know the dreadful experience of being with somebody who's very upset with you. Ever had that happen? What does it look like when somebody's really upset with you? Well, when you try to make eye contact, what do they do? They look away from you. Or if you do look at them and, their eyes, and your eyes catch their eyes, there's a glare that could kill and so it's, it's, a, it's a terrifying thing to have somebody who will not look in your eye or, or you, you know something's wrong. Something has damaged the relationship. On the other hand, you know how wonderful it is when there's a smile on the other side and a warm embrace. This is what the psalmist is calling the people to pray for. Blessing in the context of a relationship with God who loves his people 
And the psalmist is calling them to pray in this context. He's lo- he loves us and he's provided all that we need for such a relationship through what he's accomplished through his son Jesus Christ and his cross work. Furthermore, if you've trusted Christ as the perfect once and for all sacrifice to pay the penalty of your sin, you have access to those blessings already. Did you know that? Ephesians 1 talks about that. The whole verses 3 to 14 are one sentence, one endless, almost seemingly endless uh, hymn of praise for all the blessings that, that God has given us in Christ. And so God indeed is gracious. And our hearts resonate with the idea of his grace. But here is the problem in churches like ours where we appreciate God's grace. We talk about God's grace. We, we, we want his blessing. Here's the problem. We are prone to disconnect God's blessing in our lives. We want that, right? Do you want God's blessing? Anybody? You want God's blessing? We're prone to disconnect the blessing in our lives from the purpose of that blessing for our lives and through our lives. See, we, we live in kind of a, a, a me-oriented culture, and it's easy to focus on what God has done for us and miss what he intends to do through us. So what is God's purpose? What does God, God not only done for us, what does he want on the basis of what he's done for us, what does he want to do through us? And this is where the psalmist is going with his prayer. Bless us so that. So that indicates here's the, here's the aim, here's the purpose. This is what God is intending. Bless, bless us so that his way may be known on the earth. All of God's blessings, spiritual blessings, physical blessings, they are meant not only to be enjoyed, and they should be enjoyed, and and rightly God receives praise for that, but they're also to be deployed for the sake of others. This was God's plan from the very beginning. So we've heard the ironic blessing, and, and the psalmist is drawing from that blessing. But it actually goes back to an earlier blessing that we read about in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. The blessing God gave to Abraham that would come to his descendants. And this is where he says to Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here's here's the idea here. In in the old covenant that God made with Israel, there was this this beautiful vision that Israel would be the visible image of the invisible God before their neighbors, before the countries among whom they lived in the surrounding area there. That means that When the Moabites and the Edomites and the Hittites and the Philistines and other nations looked at Israel, they were supposed to see the gracious ways of the true God writ large and beautiful in the character and and in the national life of God's people. So look at Israel and you learn about their God. God's invisible. We can't see him, but we can learn what he's like by looking at his people. That was the logic behind this. Now, what happened? What happened to Israel? They they beautifully reflected the image of God, and nations were drawn like magnets to the true God, and no, it actually didn't 
work that way, did it? Now, when we look at the rest of the Old Testament, we realize that Israel did not live up to that calling. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But the point, nonetheless, holds true for us today. We are God's people today. God has blessed us, not simply because he loves to, which is true, but to the end that from our lives will be an overflow of that blessing to others. And that blessing is named not just at us, but it's aimed to people everywhere throughout the earth. And so in short, verses 1 to 2 call us to ask God to bless us so that we could be a blessing to others in a way that will do what? Well, what did you think of the worship time this morning? I don't know about you, but I, I get to a point where I can hardly sing because it is so overwhelming to contemplate what we're singing about and to whom we're singing. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? And we're just getting warmed up, right? God wants to be a blessing to Faith Church. God wants to be a blessing to you if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ so that you can be a part of expanding the chorus of heaven. This is just a little taste of what lies ahead. This is where God's plan is going, and this is what you can do to participate. Yes, pray for his blessing, but pray not just for me so that I can have what I want or I can be comfortable. No, so that I can reflect your blessing to others and be a part of God's call to the nations to join the chorus of heaven. And that brings us to the second way you can participate in, in, in God's redemptive plan. And we learn about this in, in, in uh, verses 3 to 5. And I'll just read them again. We're, we're, by the way, the point here is plead. We're to plead for the glorious outcome. And here's the outcome. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now, as, as the psalmist meditate on these thoughts, they ignite his words into just this, this passionate plea to God. Did you notice, by the way, any repetition here? Look at your Bibles. Do you see anything? Was there, a, was there kind of an error here? Did they kind of redact or write the same thing twice by accident? No. What's going on here? Again, we're seeing how when the writer repeats something, or he says something and then repeats it, it tends to be a frame, or if you don't like frames, try sandwich, <laughs> and encompasses the main idea, which is in the middle of those two repeated phrases. So this is a poetic device. And so... Uh, what are we seeing here? What's the idea? Just as the idea of blessing extending to all people acts as a frame for the entire song, we saw that in verses 1 and 7. I mentioned that just a moment ago. We find here all peoples praising the Lord frames the middle part of this psalm. So you have a frame within a frame or a sandwich within a sandwich. But drawing our attention to the very middle verse of the text. And what is that? Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's the center. That's the heart of this passage. So let's, let's look a little bit closer at this. The psalmist is envisioning a day in which salvation will be made known among all the nations. That's not where we are right now. 
We've got, and boy, if you try to, if you try to grab the statistics on this and get a sense of how many unreached people are there, there's all different kind of metrics involved, and it's hard to get a consistent number, but one number that seems pretty clear to me is, is close to 7,000 people groups that still have not been reached. Many of them have been engaged, but as a whole, they're not even close to being reached. 7,000, that's 3 billion people. That's 40% of the world's population. Our work isn't done, is it? There's much more to be done. So the psalmist is looking beyond the task to the outcome, and he's envisioning, and this is important, he's envisioning what it's going to look like to get a taste of what we just sang, but we'll look around, and our eyes cannot begin to see the end of the numbers of people that will be joining us in that. Isn't that wonderful? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, that, that, that would be great. That is really awesome. I mean, you know, go to Ford Field and fill the whole place up and everybody praising the Lord at the top of their lungs and that would be astounding, but that's only a drop in the bucket to what we're talking about when we get to the end game, right? Well, in all honesty, right now, for <laughs> it seems like we couldn't be further from that reality. You ever feel that way? Um, if, if you watch much of the news, and I, I personally don't recommend it, there's a lot of distraction going on there, and I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's good to know what's going on. It's not healthy or helpful to be so absorbed by it that it completely envelops all that you can think about or envision. But we are stunned by the rapid decline of moral order. And it's not just in our country. I, I've lived in Europe for the last 12 years, and it's actually, in some ways, Western Europe's further ahead than what we're seeing here. And it's coming to Ukraine. I tell my Ukrainian friends, it's coming. Be ready. If I could go back in time just 10 years and talk to believers about what's unfolding, they probably would say, Jerry, stop. What you said to me about what people are saying makes absolutely no sense. It's absolutely illogical. It's nonsensical. What in the world are you talking about? They could not even imagine what would be taking place 10 years later. That is today. Well, in reality, this is not a new problem. Can I say that again? This is not a new problem. Ever since Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve, the world has been broken. The disorder that we are witnessing is not merely a moral disorder. It is that, but it's, it's at root a worship disorder. To use the Apostle Paul's diagnosis in Romans 1, they neither glorified God as God nor gave thanks to him. Instead, they served what, they, they served the, what had been created more than the creator. And against this horrible backdrop, the psalmist directs our gaze to the end of God's story to something even more unimaginable than what they're seeing with rebellion that they saw in their day and what we see likewise in our day. He sees the glory of God. He models for us a pleading with God that will actually intensify our passion for his mission. 
Under the inspiration of God's Spirit, he uses language that takes us from the words that God spoke to Abraham and which run through the entire canon of Scripture. And he gives us a glimpse of the day in which there will be a countless multitude of every tribe and tongue, every creature to use language from Revelation 5.13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, joining in glad praise to God as creator, redeemer, and king. We don't think about that day enough, do we? We need to. And the more we think about that day, and the more we ponder passages such as we're looking at here and elsewhere, the more we'll long for it and the more we will plead for it. That's what the psalmist is telling us here. And if we plead for it, we will want to live for it. And that's what brings us to the heart of the psalm. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the nations with equity. And you guide. By the way, this word guide is literally the same word that's used elsewhere in the psalms, such as Psalm 77, 20, for shepherding. You shepherd the nations on the earth. Why will people from every tribe and tongue be singing for joy? Well, let's go back to something I, I mentioned earlier in passing. When God called his people... Israel, when he called them into relationship with him, he blessed them. He delivered them from slavery. He gave them leaders like Moses and David. He taught the people in the, in the ways of God through laws and instructions. And when they followed his ways, they were able to show the pagan nations around them what life was designed to look like, how to care for the poor, how to care for the land, how, how to treat foreigners in their midst, how to treat each other. He taught them the sanctity of life. He taught them the sanctity of marriage. He taught them contentment. And that he taught them that more than anything else, he was their greatest treasure. And the design for all this was that through their lives, the surrounding nations would look and they would see the people understanding God's instruction, acting on that instruction, seeing therefore God's justice lived out in the way they dealt with each other. And they would see, the loving, they would see loving leadership Servant leadership that would, that would turn from idolatry to trust and worship in the one and only true God of Israel. So they see God's trailer, Israel. They're the trailer of the movie, you know, Paradise Restored. And they would look at that and they would come to him. You're saying, well, wait a minute. That was the plan? Because that's not what happened. Well, there were moments in Israel's history where they had indeed experienced a taste of this blessing under David. And, and it actually, there was a point where, and you, and you see this in Psalm 72, which is the last of the second book, the second book of David. They're on the cusp of doing it. It looks like it's just around the corner. We're, we're bringing in the kingdom. Here it is. And then what happened? They failed. They failed. And because of their disobedience, God had to carry out not blessing, but curse. And just as he exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, his presence, so he had to exile Israel from the promised land, the land flowing in milk with honey, the place of his presence, the place where his tabernacle and later his temple was and through which he could dwell among his people. 
They were sinners. Yeah, they were, just like us. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, as you get to the end of the Old Testament, already you're getting, something's going on here. We thought David was going to be our guy, but that didn't work out. We thought surely one of his descendants, that didn't work out. Well, in fact, it was one of his descendants, but it wasn't one of the ones that we read about in the Old Testament. It pointed to, a, the promise pointed to a son greater than David. David was only a foreshadowing of the true David, the son of David the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to do what David did not fully do and Israel would not do. He came not only to live a life that we could not live, he came to do it in our place and then die in our place to receive the penalty of our sins so that by faith we could be united to him. And in him, we have all the blessings we could ever need so that we can be a blessing to a watching world. And finally, the third way you can participate is to live, verses 6 and 7, live in steadfast confidence that God will accomplish what he has planned. You read in verse 7 or verse 6, the, the earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. What's the focus here? It's on the harvest. In the Old Testament, one of the clearest evidences of God's blessing in response to his obedient covenant people was the harvest. And when they did follow him and by faith they obeyed him, they had wonderful harvest. It was a, and that harvest was something they needed, but it was, it was even a greater thing. It was a token of God's favor and blessing. In fact, if you want to read more about this, just go to Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 where he gives the blessings and the curses before they go into the land and they're all about, they tend to revolve primarily on the land and harvest and fruitfulness. And in the lack of that, of course, barrenness and famine. And you see all that working through the historical books. That's the backdrop of what's going on when Israel is trying to worship the thunder god. They found a better guy to do their work and to bring in a better harvest. Who better than Baal? He's the thunder god. He brings the rain. Therefore, he brings the fertility. And what did God do? If there is a Baal, he works for me. And what does he do? Well, you know the whole thing about bringing down fire. They, they, had, a, they had a contest on, on Baal, the prophets of Baal's home turf. It was a home game. Come and see who the real God is. And, of course, you know they get out there and they try to put on a display and cut themselves, do everything. And Elijah's kind of in the background joking, you know, oh, maybe he's on vacation, maybe he's not available right now. And... He just gets up there and prays, and fire not only comes down, it completely consumes everything. God's making a statement there. You're looking to Baal. You're looking to the pagan gods to do what I only I can do. Well, they turned, their way, they turned away from him, and they, they believed. They, they turned to idols. They turned to Baal. They turned to God replacements. And the result was they found the, they, they were under God's curse. The people's faithfulness to God was a prerequisite for, for God's blessing. The fulfillment of the covenant requirements resulted in bountiful harvest and increases in livestock. But those physical blessings that 
the psalmist talks about here foreshadows something greater under the new covenant. And that is a harvest of worshipers from the ends of the earth. Which brings us to verse 7. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him, or, or better, it's probably better to, the NIV I think gets it better when it says all the ends of the earth shall fear him. It's, it's certain. It's going to happen. I mentioned earlier that we live in times where it seems like we're facing unparalleled opposition from those who oppose God's order and God's ways. And at times it seems like this is an unstoppable force. It's not going to go away. There's not, not even the Supreme Court can stop them, someone would say. But don't be surprised by it. When I was here back three years ago, I think I preached from Psalm 2. If, if, do you remember that? If you do, come up here. I want to shake your hand because you have an incredible memory. <laughs> Sometimes I forget what I preach the next week. So, but when, I was looking, when we were looking at Psalm 2, we noted that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are bound together by the same thing we've seen in this psalm. Psalm 1 begins with blessing. Psalm 2 ends with blessing. And again, there's that device that shows you these two psalms are meant to be understood as a pair. They go together. And so blessing frames the two psalms. Psalm 1 talks about the ideal man, the person who lives life what God intended it to be. Who is that ideal man? Who is the ideal Israelite? Well, who was he? There was no ideal Israelite that lived up to the description that you get in Psalm 1. Who lived up to that perfectly? I think that ideal man is pointing to what Adam was before the wall, before the fall, and what the new Adam is after the, after the fall, and that is the new Adam is, is whom? It's Christ. He is the second Adam. He is what the ideal man of Psalm 1 points to. And then you go to Psalm 2. What happens to the ideal man? Well, in Psalm 2, he's God's king. He's God's Messiah. And what's going on there? Rebellion. Uh, nations raging in opposition to God and his ways. People saying, you're too narrow. We want to break off your narrow boundaries and be ourselves. Sound familiar? Well... This has been going on ever since Genesis chapter 3. This is nothing new. I think we've become so accustomed to the freedoms that we've had in our country, which is, are rather unique when you look at the flow of, of, of world history and geography. We've become so accustomed to them for the past two centuries that we're in shock at what's unfolded the last 10 years. Should we be concerned? Well, yes. Does it threaten to overcome God's plan? Not a chance. Go back sometime and read Psalm 2 again if you need to. And you will see that God's promise to bless the world through Abraham has always faced ongoing opposition. If anything, as the intensity grows, the story's getting closer to the conclusion. That's the way a drama works, isn't it? Just when you think it's impossible, what happens? The, the cavalry comes and rescues. Well, this is, this is how this is playing out in God's story. God is on the throne, and he will accomplish his purposes. Now, we're talking about missions, and I'm so glad that you 
take the time out every year to focus on foreign missions. Because I believe we're facing the final frontiers. Are you with me? The final frontiers for the proclamation of the gospel. And I know what, when you look at those statistics, good night, 3 billion people, 40% of the population, 7,000 people groups. Wow, we're far from being done. There's a reason why these people are unreached. The low-hanging fruit has already been picked. <laughs> right? What is in front of us are remote areas. What is in front of us are countries, are cultures, people groups that are hostile to the gospel. These are the hard-to-reach parts of the world. But know this. God's plan is moving forward and nothing can stop it. Since Kelly and I returned to the U.S. from Ukraine back in June, we have had the privilege, I'm now moving into a role of mission pastor, meeting several young men and women who are responding to the challenge to go to hard places. And they, they know what they're signing up for. They know the risk. They know the potential cost. And frankly, I have been encouraged, both encouraged and challenged by their commitment to God's call to go to hard places. My hope is that you will also see God at work in your midst and you will be encouraged with what he's doing and you will, whether you go or whether you are here, you will choose to participate in what God's doing to bring the nations to himself and to expand the choir of heaven to the scene that we see in here in Psalm 67. To summarize this passage, three things. Pray that you will know more and more of God's blessing. Why? Because God will not use you to stimulate in others a desire to have what you yourself do not have. So pray for blessings so that you can authentically display that blessing to those around you at work, or school, among un un unbelieving neighbors and family members. Ask God to bless you in your walk with him so that your life is a compelling foretaste of the gospel to others. Then, secondly, plead with God that he will bring about this glorious outcome. Not because God depends on your prayers, he doesn't, but because your prayers are precious to him and foster in you a daily dependence on him to do what you and I sometimes struggle to even imagine. And finally, live in confidence that God will most assuredly do what he has promised. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day when the nations will be glad and sing for joy. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on that day when the words of this psalm move from prophecy to final fulfillment. And Lord, until that day comes... Bless us so that we may be a blessing to others, so that we may be a blessing to the nations through our prayers, through our lives, and through investing in your servants who are taking up the call to go to hard places. Do this all, Lord, so that all may hear your gracious good news and that there will be in that day that we envision around the throne of heaven 
a host of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Brought together, diverse, diversity like you can't imagine, and yet unified around one thing. Your gospel, your glorious son, your great love to us that made it possible for us to be restored to you so that we can live with you and serve you and enjoy you and delight in you forever. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.